Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Brady Caleb Wilkinson, who is an author. His first book, The Dance of Dawn and Dusk. Um, I know you had copies at FanX, but on Amazon, I was looking, and, and it says the release date is November 5th of 2021. Was that kind of a pre-sale at FanX? Well, it's... Uh... Really, what Fanex was, it was much more of a promotional opportunity than it was even a pre-sale. I technically had copies there available to me just in case, you know, I had any magazines come by or whatever, so I could hand them out and arc an advanced review copy. But it was just mostly there to push pre-orders. Nice. And so it does come out November 5th. Yes, sir. Perfect. Um, Brady, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and... um, Tell us a little bit about what the book is about as well. Well, I am uh, Brady Caleb Wilkinson, and uh, this will be my first novel since transitioning over from stage place and uh, to a lesser extent screen place. With the bio, I always hesitate on what exactly to say because I'm not exactly bashful per se, but I know there's a healthy distance to maintain in this sort of stuff, you know? Right. Like, like if I'm feeling a little bit glib about it, I'll say, I am a person, I exist, I do things, and I hope that someone remembers me when I'm dead. Fair enough. <laughs> but, if I'm being a, but if I'm being a little bit more thorough, I, I'm a raised Florida man. I've uh, been on through a number of adventures and misadventures who have informed and made me the man that I am today. And uh, you better believe that life experience pays forward into the book. The Dance of Dawn and Dusk while being largely informed by my own tastes in fiction and literature, its two biggest influences unquestionably being Game of Thrones and the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. But I, but I can't say that a bunch of other elements of my life and my personality bleed over into that as well. I mean, I do my best not to put any sort of like partisan angle onto it, but I do not hide my philosophies in my work, you know. I'm a big believer, as cautious as I can be in the interpersonal parasocial stuff, I am completely unreserved in letting my mind flow through my words on the page. So what was the genesis of the book? You said um, Game of Thrones, and I wasn't familiar with the, the second reference that you said. The second one, when I'm doing the sale on the book, I usually say Avatar The Last Airbender instead, because I know more of the audience is probably going to recognize that title. But uh, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms is one of the four Chinese literature. Like, if you've ever heard of Dynasty Warriors, Dynasty Warriors is based upon The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay. And uh, I'm now the other four great novels play their own part in it like uh if you're uh, familiar with journey to the west which more people are probably more familiar with that than they realize since dragon ball is basically a soft retelling of that story mm-hmm. yeah you might recognize a few names and a few titles if you're familiar with that one as well that one was another huge influence um perpetually Someone who influences me constantly in just about nearly every phase of every writing project I do also is a William Shakespeare. 
I mean, I'm just absolutely in love with the Bard. And I know I'm here to promote one work, but if I can plug the other work I got up available for purchase at the moment, it's The Romance of Wind and Fire, which was my own effort to basically tell Hamlet and Juliet. Yeah, um, I was actually going to ask you about that. Yes, I'm I'm incredibly proud of that book because in part I actually got it to stage. Nice. Oh yeah, so I went out, I wrote it and then for the Great Salt Lake Fringe Festival where you know they have local indies and up and coming directors, you know, you come out, you make your pitch, hey, and then if they like it they'll let you put on the show. So for with all two dimes and three nickels I could muster to uh afford for the budget we staged it and we got it done and we got really good reviews. And uh, honestly, the thing I can say is that if Hamlet and Juliet sounds interesting to you, where take Romeo out of his place and put Hamlet mm-hmm. there. And I mean, like, not like they go through like a time portal or whatever. It's not like Spider-Verse or something. It's that Hamlet is born as a person is born in place of Romeo. And naturally, there's going to be a follow-up to that Romeo, the comedy of the Prince of Denmark. Oh, nice! But I haven't quite, I haven't quite gotten around to writing that one yet. So you've written a play um, and a, and a novel. What are some of the similarities to do both, and what are some of the differences, or what are some of the struggles that you had? Oh, there was definitely a transition period, and I'll be entirely honest. I fully anticipate people being able to notice a bit of that transition in the book itself. Like probably where they're going to notice it most is in the formatting of the dialogue. Like uh, I just, for the life of me, I could not get my brain to stop yelling at me (laughs) until I put a space between the paragraph of the, you know, of the action and then the dialogue bits of where people were talking. But uh, I know this is a, a little bit mechanical for probably what you intended out of this, but probably the thing I struggled most with in the transition was dialogue tags. Because, you know, on the script, you don't use dialogue tags. Right. It's just person's name and then action. And that's, and the ambiguity is part of the point. You know, you want to, especially with me doubling as a director, you really understand that you want a certain degree of ambiguity in the lines. So that gives actors room to actually perform it. If you're too restrictive, too on point with the lines, then basically an actor can't do anything with it. So it was interesting trying to redirect my director brain back into the writer brain where it, where it was almost like I was, it's, it's almost like I was directing my characters on the page to a certain degree uh-huh. and then having to figure out how to write it. So, so the audience, you know, doesn't see the seams, but uh, probably the other biggest difference was intense as a general rule. And by general rule, I mean, 95 plus percent of people abide this rule. It's not strictly speaking like a law or anything, but it's the industry standard. And if you don't, and I found this out the hard way, if you don't abide this standard, it, it it's, you're not going to get any love at all. You're not going to get a second look in the slightest is that novels are, are basically written in past tense. Scripts, whether they be stage or screen, are written in present tense. No, I read a book a couple years ago that was in present tense, and it was 
kind of odd. It was it took a while to get into because it kind of had to refocus my my brain and the way I read. Right. Like even if you're not openly hostile to the idea per se, it's just something on a base level. As a book reader, you're so used to it being the one way mm-hmm. that when it is, it just it's just too jarring. It just it just pulls you out of it. Right. So that was a bit of a challenge because I'd get like three chapters in and then I'd realize, oh, no, I read it all in present tense. (laughs) Because you start out, you force yourself, okay, past tense, past tense, past tense. But eventually you find your groove and you really start getting up to speed. And when you're in your groove, you do what you know. Uh, So so that was fun. I had a fun time editing this. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, you mentioned your writing groove. Uh, What are some of your writing habits? So... Through and through, I am a night owl. For whatever reason, my brain works best past 9 p.m. Now, my work schedule does not appreciate that very much, nor does my sleep schedule at all. But, yeah, I'm a night owl. So what I'll usually do, you know, come home, get set up, square away, do everything I got to do, go out for a walk, come back home. That puts me back around 8 or so. That usually lines me up pretty well with when my brain really wants to get creative. And then do you have a block of time that you kind of set aside or do you just go until you, you're done? I usually go until I'm done because is usually when you set down the block of time to write, uh, most of those sessions you just kind of wind up rereading the, everything you wrote previously a hundred times over as you're trying to think of what the next step is going to be. Or not even really so much that you're trying to think of what the next step is going to be. You know what all the steps are going to be. You're trying to process how to how to put them on the page. You're trying to figure out, okay, I have the vision in my head. What words do I need to use to articulate it? So, yeah, so, so when I try and sit down, you know, okay, I'll schedule it once, a, you know, every day, Monday through Friday, I'll, I'll schedule it down and write. And then most of those days, you know, you just kind of sit there and you stare at it like this. Right. And then when you get around to a time, you know, like on like a Saturday or Sunday when you actually have the full day available to you, it'll hit you right when you actually have time to actually get to it. And then you just spend like 12 to 17 hours writing nonstop. So it can be a bit of a fickle mistress. It's so true that when you, at least for me, it is so true that when you schedule time for it, it doesn't want to come. But when you're in the middle of something else, that's when all the good ideas come. That's when the spark hits. Right. So do you, when that spark hits and not this, you know, we've been talking about writing habits as far as writing, but when that spark hits and it's an idea and you're doing something else, do you carry around a notebook or do you have just a a phone that you write stuff down on? Nope. Just all here because a lot of times when I'm in the middle of something else, it's in the middle of something else with like my hands or I'm in motion, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times it'll be as like I'm driving. You don't want to be writing on the window or something as you're driving. Exactly. (laughs) And and I don't want to be wrecking the car that I just paid off. Yeah. You know, no, you mentioned that, you know, you have points that you want to hit in your story. Um, Do you keep that? Um, locked up in your brain as well, trying to get out, or do you outline? Um, how do you go about your, your your storytelling process? So my larger writing process, it usually, okay, phase one of it is 
just the raw nebulous idea truth be told this is kind of where i find fan fiction writing is actually somewhat useful like when you just have the raw idea you can just spit it out into a space and then just more or less puke it onto the page and then you can sift through and divine what is worth keeping in that mess later so that's usually where i start Mm -hmm. not that i always turn it into like a fan fiction or whatever i'm just saying that as kind of a general note to up-and-coming writers like if you have a raw idea burning in your head just pour it out onto a page somewhere just to get it out because you can always sort it out later and figure out neil gaiman said one of the wisest things i've ever heard anyone say about the writing process he says that writing the first draft with a single working headlight at night through fog on a one-lane dirt road. It's in drafts two, three, and so on that you make it look like you knew what you were doing the whole time. And that, and I, that rings very true to me in my process. Like that first phase is just the raw burning idea. And then you just get it, you get it out there like these notes, that version, that proto version of the script of those scripts, or in this instance, you know, manuscripts, we'll never see the light of day in it, any way, shape, or form. Because another one of the golden rules of writing that I firmly believe in is that every first draft is utter crap. No, I agree. So I guess you could call that I guess you could call that my planning and my plotting. It's that, okay, here's the idea, here's the point that I want to try and make, this is the purpose behind the writing. What story can I craft? The story for me is the ve- is more or less the vehicle of that point, at that point. And then it all becomes about crafting that vehicle. It has to be able to get to where I want to get it to. It has to be able to get to that point. As a result... I lean pretty heavily on themes in my writing. Like, if I had to say probably if anything's the core of my writing, it's probably my themes. Then with the story being the vehicle to get you to that point, you need someone in the vehicle to propel it forward, and those are your characters. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where a lot of times drafts two and three, or really, I guess, drafts one and two. When I say I'm writing my drafts, I say, oh, I'm on draft you know, 1.75 or 2.35, you know. Because as you're going through, you introduce your characters. And I'm a firm believer in the adage that if you develop your characters well, you won't be writing them. You'll be, what's the word I'm looking for here? You'll just be explaining what they're doing, you know. You won't be telling them what to do. Now, where that gets kind of messy is once you've got a fully developed character and you more or less release them into your world and or into your story, uh, they're kind of like D&D players in that way. They like to go off-road. They like to go off the beaten path. And what you have to do is you have to balance out, okay, is there are there little misadventures leading the story somewhere good, someplace I didn't originally consider? Which, in this book, The Dance of Dawn and Dusk, that is the character of Ryuka in a nutshell. Like, once I created, crafted her, and released her, she just zigged and zagged the story all over the damn place. <laughs> but she so often led it to a much better place than 
I know this might sound even borderline psychotic that I'm talking about the fictional character I created, you know, telling me what to do. I swear I'm not crazy. But, you know, she would more or less grab hold of the story and pull it in whatever direction she wanted to go. And in doing so, I'm like, oh, that's that's much better than what I was planning before. No, I agree. Um, I've had this happen to me as well. And when I tell non-writers that, oh, yeah, my character just went AWOL on me and just went off in a totally different direction, they're like, but you are the writer. Like, you created it. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't have control of it. Like, it just went. And I just went along for the ride. Right. It's like, it's that point when you know you've really genuinely created something, when it has, for lack of better wording, a will of its own. Yeah, I love that feeling. It, I love that feeling, but it also drives me utterly insane in drafts two and three. <laughs> so when that happens, how are you able to, to reel that back in? Um, like you said, um, you know, that you had your character that kind of zigzagged and you kind of let her go. But if she goes in a place where you don't want her to or, like, kind of paints yourself in a corner, how do you back up to right. to get it back on track? You see, what you really have to do is you have to understand your characters intimately well. You have to know their every little in and out. Now, where a lot of, you know, early writers make a very big mistake is they think, oh, I thought of every little audience. No, you don't. Most of the details you come up with and that your understanding of the world will never see the page in any meaningful form. And truth be told, it's better off that way because this is where me being a director, you know, from the script side of things, I think actually was kind of conducive to me. I'm like, okay, give them the freedom to explore and have the freedom of the ambiguity for the audience, for the reader of the, so that they can have some room to figure it out themselves. But you're absolutely right. They can completely derail it, and you do need to find ways to get them back on track. Now, you can just break the character, but you never want to do that, you know. You can more or less just, you know, more or less revoke their will from them and then just force them to do what you want them to do. But unless they've completely dead-ended your story, you never, ever, ever, ever want to do that. Because no matter how well you do it, it's going to be noticeable. It's going to be like that type, that magnitude of a character break. You can't hide it. So for me, you have to understand your character so you can know what event. Like, you're in control of the world. You can more or less throw whatever you want at them. So long as you're abiding by the rules you established for your own world. But in but in order to do that, you have to know how they're going to react off of it. Mm -hmm. So long as you do that, then, yeah, you can throw a new obstacle at them and they'll bounce right off it. And then you can use that to more or less redirect them to where you want them to go. So how do you get to know your characters intimately? Do you have a, like a character sheet on them and like kind of it, write as much as you can about you them? It usually it usually starts in the outline, you know, A, B, C, okay, here's plot point, here's plot point, here's plot point, all building up to the thematic endpoint. And then from there, I then go in and then, yeah, I make character sheets for them where it starts with basic biographical data. And then 
a lot of the writing process I find, and this is probably going to sound weird to non-writers, a lot of the writing process isn't actually the writing itself. It's taking the time to just think through your character, your worlds, and your stories. It's almost like you're meditating on them to a certain degree. And for my part, again, I'm going to sound like a complete crazy person here, but I like to have conversations with them. Now, part of the way I have conversations with them, I don't know if you do this in your writing, but I'm, I think a lot of writers do. Now, I'm not talking about like self-inserts. Like when you do, you know, protagonist self-inserts, that really goes sideways more often than it doesn't, you know. But I do think most authors write themselves into one or more of the characters in their stories. And there is definitely a character who embodies me in my stories. And the thing is, by by having the other characters interact off that person, even if it's just in a purely realm of fictional thought, like something that'll never see the page, you know, just kind of thinking out how they would interact off them mm-hmm. gives the though gives my characters an excuse to talk to me in a sense have that dialogue and be able to get to know them a little bit more intimately mhm because there's some things not to give too much away about the you know the dance of donna and dusk itself because it's close to release and i don't want to spoil anything untowardly yeah but going through that process, you know, I'm probably on, you know, draft three or four of it at this point, and I'm probably two-thirds of the way through it, and I'm going through this process, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me, okay, why isn't this, why isn't, like, this romance thing element working here? Why is there no tension here? And then it dawns on me, oh, oh, this character is closeted. Oh, that's why it's not working. Yeah. And again, I'm sure to non-readers that sounds insane. You created them. How do you not know? But you don't necessarily know every detail when you create them. Mm -hmm. A lot of those details, you you don't really – you discover them, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I agree. You mentioned the bard, um, William Shakespeare. He sounds like he's had a huge influence on you. Oh, undeniably. What other – authors have had a huge influence on you. You mentioned, you know, Game of Thrones and, and the, the other, I still can't remember it. I need to be better. <laughs> oh, no worries. Like, I, I, like, uh, the Romance of the Three romance Kingdoms. Of the three I know, kingdoms, yeah. I, I know, I know that one's a doozy. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I can't deny that J.K. Rowling is, was a huge influence on me as well. Now, I think her influence comes primarily in character and not world building. Like, if I'm being entirely honest about Joanna, I think world building is one of her weak points in uh, the weak points in her writing. But when it comes to character development and especially character voice, she's she's magnificent at. And I can't deny that, you know, when I was trying to figure out, okay, how would I how do I have these characters talk in a way that's unique, you know? Like, you don't want to just rely on the dialogue tags of X characters said to let people know who's talking. Like, they need personality. Yeah. Like, to a certain degree, in a conversation, by the time, you know, your readers are a good chunk into your book, they should more or less be able to look at the sentences without the dialogue tags and know who's talking. 
and she was and yeah jk rowling was a you know just going back to thinking okay how did she do it in harry potter which is obviously something i grew up with i mean harry was 11 when i was 11 so i literally grew up with him when he was 12 i was 12 but now when it comes to like the world building and stuff i mean it's I owe, to, owe it to the same person that Martin owes it. I owe it to the same person that basically every fantasy author that follows him owes it to him. Tolkien. I mean, one of my favorite pastimes in high school, no joke, was reading the appendix of The Return of the King. Yeah. Like, just about every single day during lunch, I'd, you know, find time out, just peel, a, peel away, find a little corner, and just look over it because I just... I couldn't believe that he created a world. Like, more than a story, he created a world. Yeah. And he had so much history in the world. Right. And and that's the beautiful thing that informs it. That's the thing that makes it feel so alive, is that there is a history to it. And it's that names mean things, you know? Like, they're not just randomly generated. Like, not to knock, uh, not to knock you know the fan other writers in the fantasy genre but i feel like that's a point that often gets overlooked when people are creating names and or places or locations or histories and this is something that martin understands through and through like take for example the name king's landing why does that city have its name it's because it's where aegon landed on westeros yeah like it's not just because it sounds cool no there's a, there's a specific meaning towards it and and behind it um you mentioned you know your character's voice and how each voice you know should sound different not just just wooden like and like you said with the tag saying who says it you know will you going back to william shakespeare he does such a good job at this that when you understand the characters you can read the play without the tags and know who's speaking i mean much ado about nothing you you know Benedict and you know um, Claudio and Don Pedro. You know who's speaking. Same with Romeo and Juliet, you know. Oh, the best character for that in that play, by the way, is Mercutio. Yeah. One thing I love about William Shakespeare, he was uh, a fantasy author. A lot of his books, or a lot of his plays are in the fantastical realm. And Oh, undeniably. See, that's actually kind of the interesting things about the fantasy genre to me. I mean, when you get right down to it, The fantasy genre is the bedrock of classical literature. Like, it is the classics. But for some reason, for a long time there, it got disavowed as, like, kid stuff. And now we're finally coming back around to where it's being treated respectfully again, you know? Well, it's been, I mean, I say, again, on a timescale. It's been respected, you know, for, like, 30 to 40 years now. But on the scale, you know what I mean. No, you you are exactly right. Like, even Tolkien, he didn't get as much respect as he he did in the seventies. As you know, like like in the seventies compared to when the book came out in the fifties, and as I don't I don't know if you know uh, Terry Brooks with Sword of Shannara and and stuff like that. Yes, but sir. when that came out in seventy seven, like he was taking a big risk because fantasy wasn't a big. Um, genre pe- that people were reading it at the time and it kind of rejuvenated the fantasy um, genre you know and along with that Dungeons and Dragons came out a few years before that people were 
playing in their basement and, and going to college and playing. Um, and I think that helped when Terry Brooks came out with this massive tome of, of fantastic fiction that people were able to grab onto and levitate to. And, and, and then it just kind of slowly trickled with, you know, um, the TSR forgotten realms and, um, chronicles and, and all of that. And it, it's just kind of a snowballed into where now it's mainstream. It's everybody, everybody knows and has read at least one fantasy book in their, in their life. Oh, without a doubt. And like, there's no more shame. There's no more hesitation in it. Like, you know, there's, there's, you're no longer going to be the nerd who gets beat up because you write, you read it, you know? Yeah. No, like when, um, when I was in sixth grade, sixth grade, that's when I was started reading. For, well, a little bit before, but I remember going to school with Elfstones after I got in with Sword of Shannara, and yeah, people were like, "Why are you reading that?" Like everybody else was reading other things that um, that were enjoyable, but that just wasn't me. It was like me and a couple of kids that would get around and talk about it, and and now, like my son, he is in eighth grade now, but he's grown up knowing nothing but fantasy books and science fiction and, and superhero movies really and that that's helped as well same with harry potter and he can talk to anybody about anything uh, uh, in the fantastical and science fiction genre and can relate and people can relate to him right it's nice being able to talk about it in like common society like i'm still blown away that my aunts and uncles know who thanos is <laughs> like like that still does not register in my mind that they that I can have a conversation with my uncle about Thanos and he knows who the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. But on the subject of fantasy, I, I mean, you as you're talking about it in the 70s, it got me thinking, do you think some of the reason for that is that science fiction kind of took fantasy's lane from it for a while? That is fantasy. I mean, not science fiction. I Yes. And as as the answer to your question science fiction was the bedrock um for genre or you know speculative fiction in the 50s and 70s you had asimov and heinlein and all these people that even ursula k Le Guin, even though she did write some fantasy with the wizard of Earthsea, um oh yeah love that yeah, series by it's, the way it's fantastic science fiction was the bedrock i mean they had science fiction movies and like even if they were like low budget c-grade movies like they were they were on at night and you didn't have any sort of fantasy type of movies or or tv shows or anything like that i mean yeah it's star trek and um in the 70s Battlestar galactica and and others that i think that's what when people were going to escapism in the in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s it was science fiction and not so much fantasy well, you see, I think it's even more than escapism. I think it's that it's social commentary as well, because when you get right down to it, a lot of the classical fantasy stories are commentaries of their days as well. Like it was the avenue in which people had to express their concerns, their fears, their dreads. I agree. Like actually, uh, uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. And this does, okay, it's... This element of the book is it's very it's very humorous seeing it from today's light, particularly from like an American perspective, because now hear me out here. Like, relax. I'm not just hear me out. 
I'm about to say something a little saucy. It's going to be a bit of a hot take here. <laughs> John Milton, in how he wrote Satan, wrote the original American anti-hero a hundred years before America existed. Because the commentary of his day that was burning through his head, the thing, the thing that he the innovation in society that he was afraid would, you know, tear down the old order and bring chaos was this budding idea of the enlightenment and democracy. Like the, like the whole, like the palace in hell is called pandemonium, Mm -hmm. which is, and you know, so it's, you know, the realm of chaos. It's literally a palace of chaos and how do the demons in hell decide what to do? They take a democratic vote on it. They rebelled against the divine, you know, kingly power. And then they started voting on things. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, like at that time, you know, just about a century later, you know, you had rebellions against like the crown, against the crowns so that threatened to uh, up a up in monarchy across the globe. So it is interesting to me, like those social fears are very present in fantasy works. It's just, we kind of get separated from them so we don't recognize them. That's actually very true of Shakespeare's works as well. Like the Tempest, a major theme of the Tempest, you know, with the discovery and Caliban, who's, you know, just as, you know, his name, just if you switch it around, is just cannibal. And a lot of that goes to the fears and the hopes of of the great exploration that England had just begun to do during Shakespeare's time. No, you're right. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. Um, but you're right. It is fantasy in itself is is social commentary. Even way back with the Odyssey and the Iliad. And then their spiritual successor, the Aeneid, was basically explicit government propaganda. So what are some writing tips that you could give somebody who just wants to be an author who's, who's beginning their journey? There's not really one. There's a hundred, if not a thousand things. But it's going to be, I would say this, this is kind of the mantra that I live my life by, and it has served me pretty well, and especially within the realm of writing, I, I believe. Life is for the bold. Be bold in your choices tell your story, get it on a page. It's not meant to live in your head forever. It's not meant to even live on a file for no one to read. You know, we have more means of getting it out there than ever before. Get it out there. And I'm, and I mentioned, you know, like using fan fiction before, seriously, if you have the shred of an idea, but you don't know what the hell to do with it, go ahead, puke it onto a page and put it on fanfiction.net. That's basically what everyone on there is doing. And the thing is, what you put on that page in of itself isn't going to be good. It's probably going to be horrible. But there will probably be a handful of good ideas you can pull out of it and then turn into something good. So don't always let, you know, the hopes of something better prevent you from doing in the moment. Get out there and do it. Like, I know that's easier said than done, particularly if, you know, you've got... You know, if you're like me and you're you're working full time, which I'm sure that's your story as well. Yeah, it's uh, so I know it's easier said than done, and I don't mean that in the glib sort of, you know, 
real writers write. If you if you don't write for a living, you're not a writer. I I've run into those type of a holes a hundred times over. You will too. Don't let them discourage you. Get out there as best you can, but write. You know, do it because you're not going to get any better if you don't do it either. No, that's great advice. Um, being able to say you finish something, um, even if it's your first draft and it's horrible and it's doesn't see the light of day, you can learn something from that. Right. I, and truth be told, finishing finishing a book, finishing a manuscript gets you a lot farther along than than most people, more than you'd think. No, I agree. In fact, I was having problems finishing a book. Uh, you know, I'd get three-fourths into it or even a quarter into it and, and just stop and, you know, be like, oh, it's not going anywhere. So to force myself, and, and I think you'll like this, to force myself to finish a book, I took a William Shakespeare play and I said, I'm not changing the dialogue at all, but I'm going to fill in the gaps and I'm going to make it my own. And I did that for two months and wrote, a, you know, finished a book, basically, <laughs> just so I could finish something and learn from it. I love it, brother. I love it. You know what? If I can add one other, one other thing to that, as maybe people can tell from this conversation, I'm a fan of the classics. I'm a firm believer in that stories that have lasted for a long time have lasted for a reason. It's not just because, you know, you're forced to learn to read them in middle school or high school. Like, your high school, as terrible as they often are at teaching you them, is teaching you them for a reason. Like, when in doubt, look back to the old masters. The people who have stood the test of time have stood it for a reason. If you can go into it with an open mind and, you know, a willingness to learn from them, you can pick up a lot from the people who came before no, you. No, that's great advice, too. Well, Brady, thank you so much for getting on. Uh, the Dance of Dawn and Dusk comes out November 5th. Will you go ahead and tell people how they can get a hold of you? Uh, where they, you know, website or social media if you have it. So uh, website, uh, you just tack on a .com to the end of my name, so BradyCalebWilkinson.com. That'll get you to my site. I apologize uh, the, on the list of things that's at the bottom of the list. So if it looks like it hasn't been updated in a while, you are not incorrect. Uh, but uh, you can just you can find the book on uh, both Barnes and Noble and uh, Amazon. It's available in pre-order now on Amazon for the ebook and pre-order for the both the soft cover and the hardback uh, through Barnes and Noble. But an ebook will be available through Barnes and Noble once it properly releases, and Amazon will have them as well. So you just go there, you type in. You know, type in the name of the book, they'll uh, pull up. And also my site, the one thing that I made sure that my site does have, it does have links to where you can purchase. And then when it comes to social media, I know this is a tremendous financial liability in our day and age where basically every author, but especially indie authors, are utterly dependent upon it. I don't really have a social media. My mental health got a lot better after I deleted it. Let me put it that way. I, I can relate to that. And so BradyCalebWilkinson.com, find your stuff. And both uh, The Dance of Dawn and Dusk and The Romance of Wind of Fire, that, is that there too yes, so sir. people can get that as well? Yes, sir. The Romance of Wind and Fire, a.k.a. Hamlet and Juliet. Perfect. And then, 
And then at some point in the relatively near future, the sequel to The Dance of Dawn and Dusk, book two of that series, because it's book one of five, will be out. And then I swear, I promise, at some point I will find time to get Romeo, the comedy of the Prince of Denmark, done. Like, I have the whole story in my head. I have put, like, five words of it to paper. But I promise it is coming. Good. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Carson. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.